Thank you for listening to the Data is My Science podcast, the show that makes data your passion. With your host, Dapper Data. What's up, what's up, what's up? You are listening to Data is My Science podcast, the show that makes data your passion. I am your host, Dapper Data. I have a very, very special guest on the uh, on on the line right now. Uh, I know you get a chance to see him right now, but wait till I introduce him. Wait till he gets the chance to talk about everything that he's doing. He's going to blow your mind. All right. And as you know, I've talked about artificial intelligence. I've talked about machine learning. I've talked about all that good stuff. Right. At a high level, we dove deep into it. Right. Supervised learning, unsupervised, all that good stuff. But we never talked about the challenges that AI brings and some of the critical problems that AI solves. We never really dove into that realm, right? And this is good for the novice and the beginner, okay? As you know, my audience really takes takes hold of that novice, the beginner, the advanced, you know, you name it, right? But this is good for all of those learners out there that are part of the Dapper Date audience and, and who's interested in, in, in what we have to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about coding, right? We're going to talk about AI. We're going to talk about uh, the problems that it brings. We're going to talk about uh, the important role of coding in AI as well, and 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 also we're going to talk about a company called Cast that AI that a uh, special guest is going to talk about. So without further ado, I want to introduce you all to Leon Cooperman. Say hello, Leon. Hey guys. Hey Bobby. Good to be with you. How you doing, man? So Leon is co-founder and CTO of Cast AI formerly Vice President at Security Products, OCI at Oracle, which is dear to my heart because I was there for probably the past two or three years. So we both share that interest. And Leon has 20 plus years of experience spanning across companies such as IBM, Truition, and hosted PCI. He also founded and served as a CTO of Zen Edge acquired by Oracle. So today we're gonna to have a very interesting conversation, but first I'm gonna let you all listen to what Leon has to say. Leon, tell him a little bit about yourself. Uh, thank you, Bobby. Does everyone know your name is actually Bobby, or am I just like totally as a spoiler? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's Bobby, Dapper uh, Data Man, you know, they, okay. they they just freelance it, man. All right, cool. <laughs> so, so what I'm a, um, so you mentioned that job at Oracle. I'll tell you, that's the first time in my almost in my whole professional career that I actually worked for a big company. It was really, so I've been a serial oh. <laughs> entrepreneur, I guess it's a cheesy slogan, but I've been doing startups for most of my life. And mm -hmm. then I kind of entered corporate life through that acquisition. And I thought, oh my God, I was gonna hate it. I was actually hiding out under the desk. You know, like, <laughs> all, you know what it's like, Bobby, all the bureaucracy of yeah. big companies, but you know what? It was a lot of fun in the end. And it turns out, when you kind of loosen the the reins and you kind of don't give a shit, then yeah. you can have a, you can have a lot more fun and get more things done when you don't have that kind of oh I don't want to lose my job over your head. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit about me, and we'll I'm sure we'll get into some detail. Yeah, so so you started a company. Well, first off, I want to I want to go back real quick, right? Because you said that was your first big company. What made you say, look, out of all the companies? I want to go to a big company, right? I never, I, I never, it was a, it was a necessary evil, right? When the big company buys your company, pays the money, you got to go. Yeah. Oh, it was acquired. And then it was a sort of a transition, right? Temporarily. Yeah. But, okay. Well, 
it started off as a transition. I thought, okay, like I, I was one of the only ones on my team that had an earnout, which means you have to stay for a certain number of years to get mm -hmm. paid properly. Mm -hmm. um, but it started, started as a transition, but I ended up getting, like they found me somehow and I ended up getting a lot more responsibility. <laughs> so I got an apartment in Seattle and then the team grew like significantly. So I got, instead of just the, the service that, that I came to the company with, I got many more services, like every, all of the security services in OCI were, were being uh, uh, created from my team, including the future roadmap. And what was really cool is I got to actually pitch Larry Ellison on the roadmap. Oh, and, nice. that's, and I didn't know what to think there. Like, oh, is he going to understand what I'm talking about? Is he going to, but he was so engaged. He had pre-read the presentation and mm. then he was like helping me pitch the features to the rest of the audience. It was oh. surreal. It was a surreal experience. Yeah, yeah, I bet, you know, because uh, the company is so big, as you already know, um, we probably have crossed paths during the time, right? Because you said, what What was that, about 2020 or? I think uh, I, I think I left in 2020, yeah. 2020, yeah, yeah. So uh, we definitely probably crossed paths around that time. And, you know, I mean, the company is huge, right? You know, the government side, the commercial side, doesn't matter. It's just a huge company. And so you can only imagine uh, the, the average person, right? Probably eighty percent of people never get a chance to to meet Larry Ellison, <laughs> so yeah. that, that has to be an awesome experience right there for sure. Yeah. And and if we had, if I had known you back then, I was so desperately looking for talented uh, data science subject matter experts, like because we had a lot of uh, data science and data engineering uh, work to do in security. Mm -hmm. uh, I would have loved to have known you back then, but you know our paths didn't cross until now. Yeah, yeah. Hey, look, right time, right? You know, it doesn't matter, right? You know, but. So, so you started, well, you, you're a CTO right now of a company called cast.ai, right? You know, that, and, and I read a little bit about the company, but I want to hear more, right? I mean, this, this, it seems like it's making a huge difference and has a possibly make a huge difference in the world. You know, what is cast.ai? What is its purpose? You know, how, and how is data really driving this vision? Yeah, and, I'll, and I'll, we have an interesting kind of intersection there as well, which I'll tell you about. I'm not even sure if you're aware of it, but I'll tell you about it in a second. So um, so we had this premonition. Um, when we were building ZenEdge, we ran into all of these problems with our cloud bill. Like, it was, it was, it was a disaster. Like, products was great. Everything was great. Ended up turning out really well financially, but the cloud bill the function of optimizing the cloud bill was so painful and I would constantly get into arguments with my then CEO, who's my CEO at Cast as well, because mm -hmm. it was our, our kind of joint vision, that why couldn't we get this thing under control? And what I, when we kind of finished that, I remember that pain point and all good ideas are kind of born out of a necessity, born out of a need. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I wasn't the only person in the world that has this problem with cloud cost, infrastructure costs. Everyone has this problem. And you're starting to see it now where everyone's looking to cut their, their, their bills. They're looking for where all of the inefficiencies are. I right. bet you every single company on this planet today has an efficiency project to reduce their cloud spend. So I, so we, that's the, where the, the original idea came from. And then here's kind of the, the premise. Mm -hmm. The premise that the, and why we decided to focus in a very special area of cloud. We said, we believe the world is going to move to containers or is already partially fully moved to containers, right? So mm -hmm. if that's true, we need a container orchestration platform. And we believe that the clear winner is Kubernetes. All major cloud providers have a Kubernetes offering. And we right. can 
for those for those in the audience that don't know what Kubernetes is, we can dig in a little bit if you want. Mm -hmm. And then if that's true, and we believe that in five to seven years, all major enterprises will be on K8s or Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. um, then there's not enough humans in the field. There's not enough engineering power to actually service these complex Kubernetes environments. So what if there was an autonomous platform that would manage Kubernetes for you, like a DevOps engineer, mm -hmm. and, let, and let those DevOps engineers go elevate their skill sets and do the more creative work that computers shouldn't be doing anyway. Yeah. So let's leave let's leave the monotonous stuff to AI or machine driven algorithms and let engineers do the cool stuff. So that's where we got the idea. And we've only started to implement one leg of that journey, which is autonomous cost optimization. But we have many other legs of that journey that we still want to build, including uh, disaster recovery, high availability of data and cybersecurity. It, 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 the vision is for a full autonomous platform on K8s. So, so that's awesome. And it brings a question to me, you know, at some point, we as a society, right, you know, in technology, we decide to uh, uh, automate something, right? You know, it's time to automate this thing, right? You know, whatever it is. And so, you know, that whole DevOps process, that's been going on for a certain amount of time, right? It's been going on for years, you know, and you said, at, at some point, you said, hey, look, it's time to automate it, you know? And, is it, would you say that it's based off of the technology, you know, when the technology is there, when it's ready to be automated, you know, or would you say, hey, look, you know, uh, it still needs some time to to develop, even with the technology being there, right? You know, and then we need to automate um, after that. Yeah, Bobby, you're right that the world has to be ready for that automation. And I can give you some examples where we've tried things where the world just wasn't ready for it, it's just too early. And being too early is just as bad as not being there at all or should be <laughs> right. <laughs> so so you're right that that the the audience has to be receptive. And the audience, in this case, the DevOps engineer is super receptive if if two things are true. One, there's no jeopardy of him losing a job. Like anybody in DevOps understands mm -hmm. that there's no danger of not having a job. And two, the tasks are so boring and menial and the mistakes can pile up pretty quickly that it makes sense for them to automate and they wish they had that automation platform of the, on their own. No, that's awesome. And, and and when you said that there's no danger of losing their job, I mean, that's probably everybody's fear, right? With technology these days, especially with automation. When you think about AI, I mean, that I, I think I've had so many guests on this uh, podcast. When, when, when I reached, I think around 40 or 50 at that moment, um, I, I probably receive on average, at least two questions per podcast that said, am I going to lose my job to AI? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what their fear is, right? You know, even if you, it doesn't matter if you work at, uh, um, some high technology environment, or if you work at McDonald's, right? Is it a robot that's going to be ahead of me? You know, is it, is it, is it going to be something that, I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Do you believe that at one point? We will lose our jobs. So, oh, by the way, did you see, did you see uh, about a month ago Chipotle announced that labor has gotten so expensive that they are now going to start implementing robotic processing for the Chipotle you know, counter assembly line? Oh, I, oh my goodness! So that was that McDonald's <laughs> example was a pretty good one. Do I think people? I'm I'm going to share a, a link with with you right now in chat. This is mm -hmm. a really 
good. There's an author uh, who's an authority on AI. His name is uh, Mark. Uh, I don't want. I don't want to um, mess up his name. So Max Tegmark. If you if he's uh, he's been doing a lot of work on AI responsibility and kind mm -hmm. of a AI ethics. Mm -hmm. The book is called Life 3.0. Uh, being human in the age of artificial intelligence. And he talks about this exact same problem of, you know, what's the next, in a general AI world, what's the next thing that gets automated out? And he talks about pretty sophisticated things like lawyers and accountants and like, you know, things that you would think would be much further down the line of full mm -hmm. automation. And the truth is, yeah, probably some of these jobs go away, but does that really, is that really a problem for society? Our goal as humans is to continuously evolve and educate ourselves to be doing higher order thinking. We shouldn't be stuck doing the grunt work all of the time. And I understand that for some people that is uh, a reasonable and, and respectful, like there's, there's no problem doing that work in the short term. But in the fullness of time, as society evolves, our children and our children's children, they need to evolve their educations to do higher order thinking. And so, yeah, we're gonna get some automation and it's not going to be pleasant in the short term, but in the long term, it's going to lead to massive productivity gain. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, a great point. You know, that for me, I've always thought that uh, when you're dealing with the machine, right? I just want to use one single uh, word for this, you know, but when you're dealing with the machine, you you should join it, right? You should not fight it, right? And And there's going to be opportunities for you to, learn new skills, I think that's where we're going, right? Where the new generation that's behind us, right? Those, the ones that are like 15 years old, they're in high school or they're, they're even in college, right? Or, 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 or learning at an early age and they're trying to learn coding. Uh, because I actually, I, I remember uh, listening to one of your previous podcasts and you actually learned coding at an early age, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And before, so before it was yeah. a thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Before it was a thing. And so, um, I think that that's the skills that people are going to learn in the future, right? You need to learn how to code or uh, manipulate code or recode or whatever it is, right? You know, I, I think it's going to be really important for an individual. You know, my, my oldest son, he's 11 years old and I have him in a, 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 um, a Python coding course. I've had him in it for like three or four years, right? And at first he was whining and crying about it and stuff, but now he loves it, right? He's doing little small things like turtle and, and all this stuff, manipulating shapes and all that good stuff. And I think that, you know, as the machine begins to take over things like the line and Chipotle, right? You know, being able to do that, right? Somebody has to code it. Somebody has to program that behind it. And so that's where the jobs are going to be, right? It's not going to be maybe the service person in, in line, right? But somebody has to be behind the, the robot at some yeah. point, you know. So someone has to be in the factory that manufactures the machine, all of the components, all of mm -hmm. the software to make all of those components, the software itself, the engineering behind predictive analysis of supply chain to make sure that the restaurant, like there's so much work to be done. Um, people shouldn't be worried about losing those frontline jobs like like we just have to keep moving forward and by the way my son also uh he's a little bit older he's in third year engineering uh environmental engineering and uh he's doing a a, a, a project with his prof um kind of uh, internship where he's 
he's using Raspberry Pis and Arduinos oh, to, nice. to uh, create sensory. We did this together. I showed him the whole path where we're collecting the inf the, the the moisture information, the heat information, the mm -hmm. weight information. We're streaming that all through the Pi to Google Cloud where we're using data studio and BigQuery to visualize oh, this man. for the audience like and people are blown away he didn't have much coding like you know just a little bit but he mm -hmm. he learned it all in order to achieve the life science work that he wanted to achieve in the lab right 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 well let me take a pause can we both say right now that we are the reason why our kids are going to be great no <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can't say that. <laughs> I can't say that in all honesty. I think they're going to be great in spite of me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll just mess with you. All right. Yeah. So so when you talk about coding, right? You know, coding is important. You say you learned. How old did you start when you learned coding? Nine. My first computer was oh, an Apple Apple Two E. Oh my goodness. It was oh before the it was before the Mac, so they had this DOS based two floppies. You would you would boot the machine with a floppy. It would boot up into into a basic uh, uh, interpreter, and mm -hmm. you would have access to the disk, um, and you could write whatever you could write and load from disk. And it was literally a five and a quarter inch. There was no hard drive on that machine. Fantastic! I loved that thing. <laughs> Program my first game on that computer. Man, you know, that, that's history right there because not too many people understand basic, right? When you said that, they're like, what? Basic? You know, and then floppy disks, right? <laughs> they're like, what? What's that? You know, but but those are the things I think that foundational, you know, uh, uh, education is important. I was in college and um, and they started me off at, at Java. Well, they, they had a class on Lisp, right? Basic, they had a class on class on, uh, I don't know, you name it, uh, but but even like regular C, right? Just basic C programming um, and understanding all of that. Uh, I wish I had more of a background on that because that actually makes you a better developer. You know, when you get into some of the stuff like Java, right? All the libraries is already built by like C and all that stuff. So you don't understand that there was this foundation that was built upon when you had to uh, deal with garbage collection, right? And you had to actually, you know, uh, 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 do some in-depth coding and understanding of the kernel and a lot more of 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 a lot of the, you know, you're not just programming and 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 pulling modules in. You know, it was it was it was difficult then, right? And if you're a person now that just has it easy, you know, I think understanding that background is key. You know. That's one of the things that I look for, like when I'm hiring engineers, I look for that deep, um, low, low level experience and curiosity mm -hmm. more, more than anything. It's you don't have to be there all the time. But are, are you curious? You know, you get guys out of college that are just like, OK, I learned .NET and I'm, right. you know, I'm not interested in going any lower. But like have the curiosity to understand what's happening at the GPU level or at the CUDA level. Like these are difficult mm -hmm. problems. I will tell you though, I when I was in university, the thing that I really appreciated was we had a course on PDP-11, which was an early assembly language on RISC, yeah. uh, RISC microprocessors. We didn't even have those processors anymore. We had to use an emulator because the you know the thing was so old. Like we you know we had our Spark our Sun Spark stations, and we ran an emulator for PDP-11. We got to program low-level logic arrays, like basically mm -hmm. and or gates, physically manipulate them. 
and mm-hmm. I, they, they gave me a huge uh, uh, and then in the operating system course we have to learn how to build a file system and a memory manager and mm-hmm. all of those things that people kind of take for granted so I 100% agree with you that low level curiosity is super important like if you don't have it, you, there's some passion that spark missing. Like, sure, it's cool to code at the highest levels, but get down once in a while, you know, get deep once in a while. No, no, absolutely. You know, and uh, just when you mentioned CUDA libraries, you know, we, we talked about this a little earlier beforehand. And, you know, the average data scientist that I've met, they say, hey, look, all I care about is the software right all i care about is the data right you know all i care about is you know just just give me the platform right and i care only about that and so then they're running these these models right a lot a lot of times right and 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 i just ran into this with a customer when i was working with NetApp, you know and and they said hey look the performance is crazy uh trash Right. You know, but they did not understand how to dive deeper. Right. So they say, hey, look, let me try to make my models better or something like that. So that's what they go to. Right. That's to go to, you know, but they never if they if a data scientist could understand the connection between that software and that hardware, that would make them so much more efficient. You know, I believe, you know, have you do you, do you believe the same thing? Yeah. One of my favorite interview questions for data scientists is, OK, so let's pretend we're training a neural network and. I give you access to a GPU. Why do you think a GPU is so much more efficient at training a model versus a regular CPU? Man, if you don't understand the GPU architecture and the high propensity of thread counts, then you're just going to stop. Like, if you don't have that fundamental education, if you know how to use that black box model, mm-hmm. you're, you're just going to be missing a whole piece of why are we using GPUs? Like, probably a lot of people don't really understand why. Right? And Man, that's an awesome question. I don't think anybody. You know, I've even talked about like you know, from an academia standpoint, right? You know, they teach so much in data science, but they never talk about GPUs, right? They just start educating people on GPUs a lot more, and that's an interesting uh, question, right? So if you're asking the developer, or you're asking data scientists, you're actually asking them about GPUs. Yeah, oh. yeah, and I'm yeah. asking them, I'm asking them to kind of think through the problem of okay. We have back propagation as the thing that we need to use. Like, like a gradient descent is 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 happening through back propagation. That requires a lot of parallelism. GPU is really good because there are four or five, ten thousand parallel, you know, uh, computing threads that are all dealing with floating point. That's the perfect thing to back propagate through a neural network. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's just like a like a fundamental thing that you would learn in theory at the beginning of your of your journey in data science, some people skip right over that. And, they and, skip over it, man. Yeah. <laughs> All the time, you know, and, and that's amazing to me. Um, and I, I would say, I guess, in my earlier years, that's something that, that I was not educated on because they, they actually do the same thing in academia, right? They, they really skip over that process, you know, it's, they have a short period of time and they're saying, hey, look, let's just teach you about um, coding. Right. Or let's teach you about statistical analysis. Right. Or um, categorical analysis or something like that. Let's just just teach you focus in on some type of mathematical equations. Right. But they skip past some of that part. You know, Uh, do you, uh, Bobby, what's a what recommendation do you make for people who are want to get into data science, machine learning as a 
kind of a first place to figure out if they love it or not. Do you, do you have a go-to recommendation? Uh, for me, um, I guess if I could if I could take myself back to what made me uh, uh, dive deeper into it. Um, if you if you love data science or or to figure out if you want if you love it or not, you know, I think that I I would recommend um, the practical experience, right? You know, not the theory, more so than it's the practical, right? Jumping into it, trying out something basic, right? You know, I mean, something that was exciting to me is my first programming experience was that hello world right that first hello world that you did was so exciting to me because i got feedback from something that i i didn't even understand i was like this is cool right you know and 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 it was able to get me um to the next level right you know and so um i would say it's more about uh that practical experience you know uh, i've always said if you have both you're you can be amazing right you know but you find more people Either have the practical, they have the hands-on knowledge, or they have the the uh, the theory. And so I always tell people to jump out there and get practical. They jump jump out there and actually try, you know, something that is related to data science. And they have so many places in Kaggle. You know, you can go in there and you can actually do it. You can copy every single thing from beginning to end, and and you can get the same result. And if you get the same result, you start to understand it more. You know, but it's exciting when you get that first experience of uh, that practical experience. I always say, Diamond, what, what about you? Yeah, I was, you kind of took the Kaggle one. I would say Kaggle is a fantastic community and mm -hmm. people will share with you. Like you will have the forums, like so, you know, we should put up the Kaggle website for those who, who don't know, but yeah. for, it's a competition website. Companies put up money, like I just saw one from American Express. The prize money was 100,000 USD, which ain't, ain't no joke. Yeah. And, then, and, and they give you the data set and they tell you kind of rules of engagement and then you submit mm. your you can submit your solutions as many times as you want. And then the best solution wins the money. I think there's a first, second and third prize. So, like, if you're getting started and you're not sure you're passionate about this, you got to see the crazy things that they're doing on Kaggle. And it's owned by Google now, but it's still maintained a lot of independence and it's uh, still a great community. Right. The, yeah. the, the other recommendation that I make on the more on the the um, on the theoretical side is there's this uh, professor at Coursera. I think he's actually a Coursera founder. His name's Andrew Ng, and he yeah, has Andrew, this, oh my goodness, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and he has this intro to ML course, which I took maybe I don't know seven or eight years ago now. I, I, it was right very beginning of like Coursera, and that really kind of opened my eyes. And he has a very common, interesting way of uh, expressing the ideas all the way from basic linear algebra, which you go through to linear regression. And then you go into, into uh, uh, support vector machines and many, many other, like all the way through to neural networks. It's a mm -hmm. great foundational course. It takes about, I don't know, 12 weeks at your own pace. You submit homework mm -hmm. every week. Fantastic learning platform. Yeah, have have you heard his talk on? Uh, um, uh, I don't even know the name of it, but basically he was talking about it's not about how it's not about the models, right? You know, because when we're talking about performance, 
um, of the result that you're trying to get, a lot of times we skip past data preparation, right? Yeah. Actually cleaning up the data. And that was like an hour and a half or so talk. And it was amazing to me because so many people were, were developers, right? We skip past that data preparation process. And the data preparation process is like key, right? Trying to clean the data because that's the decisions that you're actually going to come out with the output and stuff, right? Yeah. And the cleaner the data, the better the, the, the result, you know? So yeah. garbage in, yeah, garbage in, garbage out, right? Like if you, and it's, 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 it's pruning the data, but also like spending the time on normalization and like just making sure, because a lot of models won't work if your data is off scale. Like if you've got, one feature that's zero to a million and another feature that's zero to 10, if you don't take the time to regularize the, the, data, the data set, you're gonna get crap uh, performance or you're gonna get features that are way overweighted. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I wanna take it a little bit back to some of the challenges that AI brings to the world, you know, and get your thoughts on that. Because a lot of times we have, we have a lot of people in the, in the audience that um, are really trying to dive into, you know, this buzzword AI, right? It was right. It's not really a buzzword, but it's, it's, you know, it's a hot topic, I guess, you know, and they're trying to understand, well, what are the use cases? What are some of the great use cases that we can use out here, right? You know, I know cast AI, that AI, you know, you have a few use cases that you have developed along the way, but AI in general, you know, just, just looking at, um, some of the challenges that AI brings to the world, right? Like ethical challenges, uh, uh, issues with re responsibility as well, right? You know, do, do you see some of that a lot going on? Yeah, and like, I think I, I listen a lot to Elon Musk who really tries to raise the red flag about like AI ethics, right? And the, the basic, you can sum it up by if we are close to general AI, which is different than machine learning or, you know, some localized models, like, uh, like a like a, a machine that can uh, you can extrapolate machine learning to all kinds of creative problems mm -hmm. and it can start to think for itself then what is our responsibility to make sure that that machine does not get carried away and do bad things to us right so if we're not ready for that if we haven't done the work the hard work to figure out where the guardrails are what the ethical implications are then like, and here, let me give you a very concrete down to earth example. If you mm -hmm. have two Teslas that are on autopilot and there's a car accident, right? Who's mm -hmm. maybe one of them was a human. One of them was a machine. Whose fault is that accident? Yeah. Yeah. What if yeah. someone got, what if someone dies in that accident? Mm -hmm. Would it have been better if two humans were driving like from a liability perspective or is the world generally safer if we have, no drunk drivers and we have robots doing the driving for us, especially when in dangerous times. So the, the ethics are extremely complex. And I think the problem is, is that society is so short-sighted that no one is willing to take a long-term or long game approach to creating an ethical structure around general AI, which may be 20 years away or 120 years away, we don't know, but the time to start thinking about it is now. Right, right. And then there's this thing like, explainable AI, right, too. Right? Great example. Right, too. Uh, understand you have a tool out there, right? You know, the transparency is not there anymore, right? And the, the AI tool is there. And, and being able to take that, you know, what exactly 
is it doing? Is it doing what it's saying that it, we're, we're supposed to do? Right? You know, the, the the algorithm and stuff like that, and and those are the things that we have to think about, right? You know, computational speed is a lack of computational speed. That's another issue that I found um, when I think about some of the the issues with with AI, right? You know, when you're thinking about machine learning and deep learning uh, solutions requiring like a, that high degree of computational speeds. Um, you know, that's what NVIDIA is trying to solve, right? Larger infrastructure requirements, you know, you have pricing associated with the processors and all that good stuff. So there's so many different issues that I'm finding, you know, uh, with with AI right now. What are what are some of the problems that AI is solving, right? I mean, we talked about some of the, 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 the issues, right? You have the ethical issues, right? With the neural networks and things like that, you know, um, but but I'm sure there's stuff out there, right? Like fraud prevention, you know, and, and I'll, I'll, I I wanna ask, are we there yet? Are we truly there from an AI standpoint where we are solving these problems? Or are we still at that real machine learning phase? Yeah, so so I, uh, we should double click on that. You brought up a really good example about explainability. And let me give you, for, for, for the audience, let, let's use an extreme example. Let's say you had a machine learning or an AI model that was really good at adjudicating law. So instead of having a judge or a jury, you would have a, an ML uh, engine that would essentially decide guilty, innocent in mm -hmm. some case, right? Now that seems pretty radical. Now imagine, yeah. imagine you had a verdict, guilty or not guilty, but you had no explainability, which is often the case with models, like especially mm -hmm. neural networks, long-term, short-term memory networks. These are deep neural nets they don't have a lot of explainability tools. Right. Do you trust if the algorithm? So obviously, if, if, if the answer from the machine is obvious, everyone kind of trusts it. If the answer becomes non-intuitive, how do you have a proof point that says that was the right decision? That's one of the, I think you really touched on it there. Explain, unless we solve for explainability, no one's ever going to trust machines to make hard yeah. decisions. Yeah. Do you have an idea of how we would do that? Because uh, right now, the more I think about it, you know, that's that's the issue with the government really adapting AI completely. Right. Especially some of those mission critical agencies. Right. You know, you're sitting there, you're looking at these government agencies and they're like, why would I trust this machine? Right. To give me the answer out there in the field in war, you know. Yeah, so, so that's a great point. And it's why I like using multiple models to kind of correlate to a solution. Mm -hmm. And I like to use, so like, and I like to use specific types of models like uh, multifaceted decision trees, like random forest. I use this thing called XJBoost or gradient boosting machine, which I really like. Why? Because you can run it in a mode that it'll actually visualize a decision tree for you, right? So a, a gradient boosting machine creates a bunch of decision trees and then takes the average of those trees as the result. So as a data scientist, I can create a visualization of that data, of that of decision tree, and then actually walk through feature importance. So most good models these days will tell you, I based my decision mostly on these three or four input features and then you as a data scientist can step back, oh yeah, that makes sense, right? Or this decision tree intuitively makes sense. I can explain it to my upstream consumer, which may be a business user 
or another data scientist. So I, so whenever I get to that kind of stage where I have to explain to the business why a model is doing a certain thing, I like to use these kind of tree-based visualizations. That's one approach. No, that's a great approach right there, you know, and, um, and, I, and I believe that I'm, I'm sure multiple data science impl implemented something like that because I know for me, you know, using different approaches actually makes them feel comfortable on the other end, right? In the, from the customer standpoint, um, it's still they're probably still questioning a lot more, you know, still, but but it but it does make you feel more comfortable, you know, when you're when you're able to give uh, uh, multiple maybe models, right? Is that, is that what you're you're referring yeah. to? Multiple models? Yeah, multiple models. And look, you need to do these days. You need to do what's called a grid search anyway, which is kind of yeah. iterate over all your hyperparameters. And you're usually iterating over multiple model types, and mm -hmm. you're comparing results. Like I just did an interview with a data scientist last week, and we we took a Kaggle data set, and then you know we got on one model we got like a 75% accuracy on a balanced data set, and then on another model we were able to get something closer to 85. Right? It, it's good to see results from different techniques and different hyperparameters. Right, right, right. Ultimately, I mean, what Andrew Yang was saying, you know, even if you have, you know, to get it more accurate, right? We say we go back to the model. A lot of developers will go back to the model. The data scientists will go back to the model. But ultimately, you could clean up the data set, right, to have better accuracy, you know, if you will. Um, so, I mean, hey, look, man, there's so many different approaches out there, right? You know. What would you say, I mean, this is completely, I, I, it might go over some of the, the novice folks' heads, you know, the beginner's heads within uh, the Dapper Data audience, but um, what would be a good accuracy, you know, account for you? You know, if you were to say, is it, you have 75%, 80-something percent, 90%, I mean, of course, 90-something percent is amazing, right? You know, but if you were a, a customer on your end, I mean, you're not the person, the data scientist going out there doing the development, what would you accept as a good range for accuracy? Or would you say, hey, look, go back and do this to give me this better range? It, it, it all depends on the, the balance of the data set. So if I've got a data set with a tiny number of true positives, so for example, we're screening for cancer patients, right? 99% mm -hmm. of cases that or, or images that come across the model are, are false. There's no cancer. Mm -hmm. So you can have a model that just says false all the time and you would be 99% accurate, but right. that 1% will kill people. So mm -hmm. that's why we don't use accuracy exclusively mm -hmm. in, in data science. We use co more complicated metrics like an F1 score where mm -hmm. we look at precision and recall and we, you know, so we look at the balance between those metrics to see uh, what so we have very sophisticated tools these days, something called an ROC or a receiver operator curve that'll help us balance precision and recall. And for folks, you can Google this, these two terms, they're fairly common terms and get to an accuracy that makes sense relative to what's more important to you. Are false positives deadly in your case or true positives more important? Would you rather error on the side of a false positive versus a false negative? And that's where I would focus on accuracy, not just the raw accuracy number, unless the data set's fully balanced, and then you can look at raw accuracy. No, that's awesome. I mean, uh, most of the time, yeah, and this brings me to education, 
right? You know, the, the most educated people on the other end, even though they may not be data scientists, you know, they cannot, I guess the right word is, you know, be pushed over, you know, or taken advantage of, right? You know, a customer that educates themselves on more than just the accuracy, like you mentioned, right? You know, uh, and, and, and other things, or just educating themselves in general, you know, um, when they when they're getting the feedback from somebody that is a data scientist, because there's a lot of I've noticed, you know, I've been working with a lot of people uh, working for NetApp right now, and a lot of partners that we have come across, they're not they're and they're small. They might be startups, right? You know, whatever it is, because you know NetApp, they're more of a data management platform than anything, right? They're not. They they have to partner with somebody that does something like Cast AI, right? Or or another uh, company that actually is doing something data science related. And when I look at, um, you know, you're able to, the the vetting that I've, I've seen a lot of frauds out there. You know, oh, people, 100%. <laughs> it's more than I ever thought or imagined since I have been with NetApp, you know, partnering with people and they're just like, you know, they could fake it very well, right? Until, until they have to really uh, show up you know, yeah. and, and, and it's been hard out there. Yeah. And Bobby, that's what I found when hiring data scientists. I just can't do a standard interview process. We've moved 100% of these to live coding where got like the person, it's a Zoom or physically in office and we're coding something together. And look, not every, you may not have all the answers. You may not be able to like know all the syntax off the back of your head, but you should know where to find it. Like you should mm -hmm. know how to use Google to effectively answer the questions uh, that will quickly get you to the code that you need. So live coding for me has become 100% essential. Like we just can't hire people unless they show us the goods, so to speak, to your point about the problem. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. absolutely, right, you know? So look, I'm not gonna hold you any longer. You know, I appreciate you being on a podcast, Leon. I like to end usually, as my audience knows, what I call a dope nugget or gem, just a summarization. And what I've taken from our conversation is that Coding is important, right? You know, for me, I, I really enjoy coding myself and I've been trying to educate my, my, my kids on it, you know, other people as well. You know, you don't have to be a data scientist. You don't have to be a programmer, whatever it is, you know. Um, and this is one thing I took from it, but, you know, coding helps you think outside the box. You know, hold, uh, coding helps you um, get through some of those tough problems. You know, I think in life in general, it helps you automate some of the things that are manual in your life that you just, that's a pain in the ass, right? You know, um, but if you're somebody that is uh, on the on the verge of actually becoming a data scientist, or somebody that is uh, in 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 the space that we live in, you know, uh, try those Kaggle competitions, right? You know, just jump out there. You don't have to win it, right? You know, you could be in last place, but you'll learn so much more. Learn to code, you know, and and like you just said, you may not have the answers to all of the problems right where you want to interview. I actually recommend to interview, just interview, just keep interviewing, interviewing, interviewing with some of the people like Cast AI because you guys give the hard problems, right? You actually help them challenge themselves. And if they don't know the answer and they and they don't they don't make the interview process and actually get the job, it's okay. You've learned so much, you know, throughout the process. Is there anything that you want to leave the audience with? Yeah. So. A uh, couple things, and I just want to touch on that topic that you mentioned. I, I was listening to a, this thing called the All In Summit, which is these four ultra-rich investor dudes that are getting like 
a lot of acclaim, but they, someone in the audience asked the question, and I, I really like the answers. The, the, the audience said, look, I'm not a technical person. I'm in finance. You know, what would you recommend in this tech space? And mm -hmm. the answer that came back was super cool. It was, you're not technical yet, is the mm -hmm. way. Anybody can be, anybody can do this. They can train themselves at some level to use technology to their advantage. There's no reason. There's, there's no barrier to entry. And there's no excuse not to learn if you want to learn. Like all the material, it's not like 20 years ago where you need to get a hold of a book. Mm -hmm. Everything is available for you. Just go learn it. Just go, just just pick it up and do it. Um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, last minute thoughts, I just uh, should we call out the couple of events that that we've got going on? Uh, Bob? Uh, uh, we can. I mean, you can you can definitely uh, list those. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, sure. So we've got uh, uh, AWS Summit coming up in Toronto at the end of June. Uh, so we're going to be showing some of our cloud optimization technologies. If you're in the on the East Coast or in the Toronto area, please check it out. And the other thing I wanted to mention is um, we're, we're obviously hiring, as we talked about earlier before, Bobby, but um, we, we have a, a special connection to Ukraine. I'm actually Ukrainian by birth. So is my uh, CEO and partner, Yuri. So we feel like we have to give back to that community. We've been fortunate enough to, you know, we were both Soviet refugees when we left the country. We need to get something back. So we're offering folks that pass our interview loop uh, the opportunity to come work with us, obviously, whenever they become available, if they're still fighting, that's cool. Like whenever you're free, come and we will pay for the first three months of housing and all of the immigration paperwork to make sure that you can get out and have a legitimate place uh, either in Western Europe or here in North America. So I uh, just wanted to announce that. And um, yeah, you can find uh, you can find all the details uh, on our jobs page, which Bobby's put up. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. And um, you know, I I really appreciate you uh, coming on to the podcast because uh, you definitely shed light on multiple topics, right? You know, this was a really fun podcast that I had, and and the audience knows that I like to end with a game called Overrated Underrated. Okay, and I got this game from a motivational speaker that I follow called Gary B. And basically, I'm going to ask you a series. I'm, I'm actually not going to ask you questions, but I'm going to throw out a series of topics, right? You know, you get to decide what is overrated, underrated, or right where it needs to be. Right? So I could throw out cheese or um, the zoo, or whatever it is, right? And it lets the audience know that we're normal, right? You know, we're not all techie all the time, right? We do think about stuff, right, that is outside the technology. Um, and so are you ready? I, I think so. Bobby, I okay. think I'm ready. Let's do this. <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. The printer. Underrated. Oh, you're like the, you're, I've said it probably about three times out of all 100 and something or so, about 200 podcasts, and you are the first person that's ever said underrated. <laughs> Is there nothing like a piece of paper in your hand? Like, come on. Like, when you're on an airplane and you need to read something, that piece of paper is like super valuable if there's no Wi-Fi. <laughs> no, no, that's true. No, no, absolutely. Because the, the airplane definitely will go out of Wi-Fi. I've never, if anybody's never experienced it, you know, it, it is probably the worst experience you can have. And the flight is longer than, you know, an hour, right? You're sitting there and you want to read something, right? You don't have your book. 
right? You don't have your laptop available because you didn't download the article, right? Or something, you know, ahead of time. But I can see that, you know, I, I personally say overrated. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I have a printer and I, and I get a, I get upset every time somebody makes me use it, you know, yeah. every time, man. And I'm just like, look, can I, I can tiny scan on my phone or I can, you know, do whatever, you know, it's always the ability to do something that does not involve a printer, but why do they force me to do this printer thing, man? Yeah, <laughs> no, I see your point, but I think if you're in the driver's seat and you want something on paper, it's like, it's, it's super cool that we can still do that. Right, right, right. All right, next one. Wait, do you live in, you currently live in Canada? Yes, Toronto. Okay, Toronto, Canada. Okay. Uh, but you are from Ukraine. Yeah, so I was an immigrant from Ukraine to, we immigrated to Canada. And then I spent the last kind of 15 years in Los Angeles, recently moved back during COVID. Okay. All right. Next, um, the Titanic movie. I underrated. Mm. Me too. I, I, I agree. I agree. I love a good, I love a good inspirational love scene, Bobby. So yeah. I'm, I'm also a sucker for musicals, which my wife laughs at me all the time. So maybe I'm not a great person for this question. Ah. <laughs> no, no, no. It was, it was a great movie, you know, and it's funny because I, I remember I was talking to my brother about this and he said that um, it's really the, the, the song that makes the movie he feels like. Yeah, you know, Celine, Di Celine Dion has a magical yeah. voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, next, um, tacos. Overrated. <laughs> that was a quick answer there, Leon. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the taco. <laughs> have you been taco overloaded, man? Has I have. I, I, <laughs> I think when you live in Southern California, there's tacos everywhere. It's just, oh, it's, it it's, is. It's, it's, it's in your face. Just, you can't avoid uh, tacos, burritos, tacos. And there's some good ones. And there's some really authentic places. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. So I don't know if you've seen this or not, but the Northern Lights. Underrated. Underrated? Underrated. Man. Okay. I can't wait. I'm, I'm going to have to definitely uh, check it out. You know. you know, like you, if you haven't actually witnessed it in person, it's just like a crazy out of body experience. Like you just have to see it. Oh, man. OK, OK, OK. All right. All right. Brunch. Just where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. There's always there's always room for brunch. <laughs> <laughs> I like nice. brunch. Scotch, man. Just as long as Scotch is there for me, you know. I'm That's gonna... an interesting uh, combination, right? I'm, yeah. I'm personally of the fan of the mimosa, but but Scotch, yeah. I think, works. Yeah, 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 definitely. All right, last one. Libraries. Overrated. Ah, I agree. I agree. I hate libraries because of the like the the curmudgeon like lady that just tells you to shut up all the time. And, like, she's like, I just have a like a horrible life, like just the memory of the library. It didn't represent knowledge to me. It just represented like a jail. Like, oh, let's go to the library, detention. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I haven't been to a library since, I don't know, when I was like a little kid, you know, I, 
I don't, I don't feel, really feel a need for me to do it. You know, some people I ask and they say, hey, look, we, you have to go to the library, you know, because it's, it's a time to get some peace to yourself and all that good stuff. So. Yeah, but actually what people don't know is in real libraries where they have a lot of books, they have to lower the oxygen level in those rooms so that they can keep the books uh, healthy, right? Because otherwise they did. And so that lack of oxygen actually makes you sleepy. That's why everyone's sleeping in the library. Oh, oh, crap. I did not know that. I used to study at the York University Library all the time. It was terrible. No, <laughs> you are always asleep, huh? Yeah. All right. The, the last one. I know I said last one, but one more. Um, I do not know how to pronounce this, but I'm gonna post it, okay? And I'm only posting this because this is supposed to be something that is a Ukrainian dish that is known. Have you tasted it before? And is that all it's hyped up to be? Are you kidding? <laughs> I grew up on this stuff. It's called. It's pronounced borscht. And, and okay. there's two, there's two different ones. So uh -huh. there's a red one and a green one. Mm -hmm. The green one is cold. The red one is hot. The okay. green one is disgusting. Like nobody <laughs> would ever have cold borscht. The, the red one is delicious because it mm -hmm. comes like it's 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 like it's potatoes and beets and carrots and cabbage and it's floating like pieces of beef. And then the way you're supposed to eat it is you're supposed to take a piece of French bread and a mm -hmm. piece of garlic. And what you do is you salt the rim of the French bread and then you use the garlic and you rub it on the bread and you eat the, the borscht with the garlicky bread. Uh -huh. Unbelievable. If, if you haven't tried it, next time we're together, I will treat you to some authentic borscht. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm going to try to find some in the uh, Maryland, D.C. area. I'm sure they have some restaurants uh, that, that definitely uh, sell it there. 100%. Yeah. Well, thank you, Leon. I appreciate you. And audience, thank you for being in the data. Listen to the Data is My Science podcast. It showed me data passion. I'm your host, Dapper Data. And this has been an amazing experience. Thank you for sharing with us all your knowledge, Leon. Uh, and 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 audience, definitely check out cast.ai forward slash jobs, as uh, Leon mentioned before. And also check out the summits out there and the AWS summits in Toronto. And I, I don't know if you mentioned, are you all speaking at it or are you, you're having a booth or anything like uh, that? Yeah, I think, I think we're, we're presenting at the vendor showcase. Nice, 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 nice. So definitely check, check Leon out, out there and cast that AI and audience, as you know, you can follow me on at Mr. Dapper Data on any one of my social media platforms. And I love you all. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Data is My Science podcast, the show that makes data your passion with your host, Dapper Data.